You're listening to the Ivy Entrepreneurship Podcast from the Pierre L. Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship at the Ivy Business School. My name is Eric Morris, and I will be your host for this episode. Eric and I have known each other for quite a while. He came through our program here, and I've been really fortunate to to be able to keep in touch with him over the years. And uh, I do I do mean that uh, to follow his journey and where he's been has been just fantastic. And uh, to see the success that they've gained over the years is uh, is really rewarding for me. So I love it. And uh, the opportunity to share that uh, with everybody tonight is something that I'm uh, really excited about. So Eric, I don't know if you want to just say a couple words about yourself before we really get into things, uh, maybe a little bit more about your history, and then we'll just jump right in. Sure. Well, it's it's a pleasure to uh, to be here. I wish we could all be together in person. Um, obviously, it's, uh, it's an interesting and difficult year in many ways for many people. And uh, I feel for, you know, all of all of you, uh, you folks at Western, that uh, this is you know, this is the year of school that got to partake in. But um, it does bring some opportunities and unique perspectives, which we'll probably talk about later. My story is I, uh, you know, I graduated from from Ivy in, in two thousand five. Seems like uh, seems like yesterday, but a long time ago. And um, you know, one of the things that I did is I went down to Mexico on exchange with school. Most of my smart friends went to Hong Kong and France and. Switzerland, and I went to Guadalajara, Mexico, to uh, learn some Spanish, get my butt kicked a little bit, and have a new interesting experience. And down there, I fell in love with tequila. So I thought tequila was originally, you know, my many days, you know, at Western at uh, the Seeps and a bunch of the bars. I uh, thought tequila was that terrible shot at that horrible bar at that CD hour of the night, and ended up trying good tequila for the first time, and was amazed by how good tequila actually is. Came back to Canada, worked a day job for about six years in asset management. And then one day, much to my mother's dismay, quit my job, went for the dream and started a tequila brand called Tromba. And didn't know anything about the world of, uh, of tequila, didn't know anything about the booze business, didn't have any distribution. You know, the- So Eric, before you go too far down that road, so you were, you were working in asset management, right? So you know, how was it that one day you decided, okay, now's the right time? Yeah, if, if I said it was one day and, and, and a week switch went off, I'd be I'd be obviously lying. But uh, it was you know it was just a, a passion that I had. It was a bug inside of me. And and a lot of people ask me, you must have not liked your job. And I love my job. I mean, I was you know I was in a, I was effectively co-managing a portfolio of stocks. Um, my boss was terrific. My peers were were awesome. But there was something inside of me when it came to doing something for myself, an entrepreneurship bug that you probably helped build. In my last my last year of, uh, of of Western, when I was you know in, in your class in the first year of the entrepreneurship group, and it just didn't die down. And and when it came to you know I would travel back and forth to Mexico, and I'd bring back tequila. And at first people would say, you know I don't want to try that. I've had a bad tequila story. And then they tried the tequila and were blown away. And I started to get invited to parties, for example, and people would say, you can come, you know, bring your tequila, you can come <laughs> bring your tequila. And uh, I saw the, you know, the opportunity there. And I saw that gap in the marketplace where there wasn't a, you know, an ultra premium tequila, an accessible price point. Tequila was very top and bottom heavy. It was either about pounding your chest, look how much money I'm spending, or about close your eyes, plug your nose, hope for the best, take down a shot. And better be lucky than smart. A friend of mine on exchange was a guy named Marco Sedano, or it was Rodrigo Sedano. Marco Sedano, his father, was the original master distiller of a tequila brand called Don Julio. So we pitched him. We thought he'd tell us to butter off. It's like asking uh, Wayne Gretzky to play in your men's league team. 
And <laughs> how did you meet though? How did you meet uh, the son? So Rodrigo was in my class. He was a, uh, he was a drinking buddy. He was somebody that, you know, one of the smart things I did on exchange was I hung out with the Mexican students, not the exchange students. And he was one of the people that introduced me to tequila. And, you know, it didn't really mean too much then that his dad was the master, you know, the original master store of a great tequila brand. I couldn't even spell Don Julio, let alone know, let alone know what Don Julio was. But I, I'm a big believer that things kind of compile in your, in your favor and the opportunities pr present itself. And, you know, for better, or for worse, I think a lot for better that that opportunity presented itself and the stars kind of lined up and, and we effectively, you know, we started trauma from there and just on, a, on another way that kind of the stars lined up. And I don't think about this too often, but when I went on exchange and my, my first day of, of the exchange program, I walked into the, uh, into the lobby of the, of the uh, exchange school in Guadalajara, Mexico, and a tall, lanky Australian fellow comes up to me, first guy I've spoken to, really. And he says, how you doing, mate? And so I'm doing okay. <laughs> and he said, uh, you know, where are you living? And I said, I don't know. I want to find a, find a place. Um, I didn't want to live in the residence there. And he said, well, how about we, we live together? And this is the, you know, that's a pretty preposterous thing. And I, and I said, okay, you know, no problem. And so he actually became my business partner in Trombo. So from that, oh really? I didn't know that story. Yeah, from that, from that chance, you know, that chance thing, and me saying yes, and being open to it, and uh, you became one of my best friends and my business partner in Trump, and he ran the Australian market. Wow. So Eric, when you you went you went back home, you got your job, and obviously you must have kept in touch with these guys. And was this something that had you guys talked about it way back then, or was it really an evolution over time that led to this? No, we, 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 we never even joked about it. I mean, if you'd have told me back when I went and exchanged, I would effectively be running a tequila brand. I would have said, <laughs> you're absolutely, you're absolutely out of your mind. It's just, you know, certain stars just kept aligning and opportunities presented itself and putting yourself in an uncomfortable position, like me going down on exchange was, was a game changer for me in a lot of ways that still impacts me today. And I'm a big believer of doing that both personally and professionally, because yeah. I had a lot of friends that, you know, went to places, and this doesn't have to be obviously exchange related, but went to, uh, I had an opportunity to go to, to Sweden, for example, where two of my best friends were going. And, you know, I would have had, I had my family there and I would have had effectively my social life lined up. But instead I picked Guadalajara, Mexico, and I opened up that exchange for Ivy. And I think it closed straight after I was there. But I don't think it was your fault, but I think that is true. <laughs> um, but uh, I didn't know any Spanish. I didn't know anything about Mexico. Um, and I just decided to, to, to have a go and do something different and, and challenge myself. And from that challenge, it's, you know, all of this, all of this arose where if I would have picked quote unquote, the safe route, then who knows, who, who knows, who knows? Yeah. Okay. So let's get to the, uh, you, you guys, I guess, start talking again about, you know, just catching up. When, how, where did the idea come from and, and how, was it your idea? Was it uh, one of the others? You know, how did it come up and what were kind of the first steps? Uh, I mean, it was, uh, I think we all, you know, I went back to, to Toronto. My, my yep. roommate and business partner, Nick, went down, went back down to, to Melbourne, Australia. And we both saw the epiphanies that we could bring when we brought good tequila back to them after we either bought it, you know, bought stuff in store or brought it back from Mexico. Yeah. And, you know, we both just absolutely loved the spirit. And there was such a great misconception still is today about, sure. about what tequila actually is, that it can actually be sipped, enjoyed, savor. Now it's obviously a much more of an evolved market. And it was really about following something we loved. 
we weren't alcoholics by any stretch of the imagination, despite my my background. Uh, <laughs> but um, but we we really did you know love that opportunity. And again, we saw that gap in the marketplace that the big players just were not addressing. And for us, I mean, I mean, so many people said you're 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 completely out of your mind. I remember my boss's face when we when I told her that I was <laughs> to do this. I mean, it was you know, she, I could see it. Are, are you, are you crazy? Cause it was not the safe bet. It was not a quote unquote, the smart, the smart bet. And, you know, when I graduated from, um, from school in 2005, you know, and, and even, even five, six years later, entrepreneurship wasn't nearly as sexy and as developed as it is today. Right. I think yeah, in my sure. class, there was, there was one guy that yeah. just did the entrepreneurship route. And people said, are you, is he, is he out of his mind? <laughs> He's going to start a, start a wind farm, and he was he was wildly successful. But yeah, I think it's you know, it was an incredible thing in terms of you know it was it was obviously the right thing to do to leave a very cushy job in in, in yeah. finance asset management and, and do this. And it wasn't it wasn't a one day thing. It was a progression of ideas, and I can't quite point to one epiphany moment. But it took it took me a good amount of time to work up the courage to actually actually do it and take no salary for for two years and work, you know, you know, work out of my, uh, my parents' basement and yeah. storage unit in their garage and, and all that stuff. It was, uh, it was well, I remember, uh, you telling the story of, uh, kind of going down and, and convincing the master distiller, uh, to join you and, and make, you know, make the jump here. Could you share some of that with, uh, with everybody? Yeah. I mean, so, so again, like Marco Sedano, the guy that we were effectively looking to, to bring on as our master distiller, again, it is literally like asking Wayne Gretzky to play in your men's league team. You're expecting him to tell you to go, you know, <laughs> politely to go, to go bugger off. Right. And effectively, you know, with him, he's, we gave him an opportunity that he never had before. So we didn't want him to be our distiller. We wanted him to be our partner. He said, you know, he was the original master stiller for, for a premium tequila for 17 years. And when he left, all he got was a watch for his efforts, which a nice watch, which was under, which ended up being robbed at gunpoint, which is another story altogether. Um, but he got a watch and he felt rightly or wrongly that he was instrumental in building that brand, which is worth in the billions today. And he didn't want to make that mistake again. And he's not a money hungry guy, but his legacy is nowhere attached to that brand. He wanted his legacy attached to this brand. He said, make me a partner, make me part of this, of this brand, make me part of this tequila. And rule number two, no gringos in the kitchen. Give me control to do what I want to do. I'm going to bring my son, Rodrigo, in your drinking buddy from school. And yeah. what's really nice is, you know, usually it's not a legacy business in the sense where it's passed on from grandfather to father to son, it's father and son building it together. So it's their family legacy as much as it's mine. And, you know, those were the two main conditions that he asked for. And we had about 10 grand and we raised, uh, you know, I call it pity money from friends and family. We had about 10 grand left over and effective after, after our first production run and went with our backpacks bar by bar, bottle by bottle and built Tromba to, to number two in Canada, number two in Australia. Oh, that's amazing. And I, and I know, you know, this isn't an overnight success. I, I uh, know you had bottles of Trumba in your backpack going bar to bar trying to get people to, to carry it. And can you just tell us a little bit about how you got, you know, it's a tough business to break into. How did you start to get it out there and, and start to see some of the acceptance? Because I'm, I'm like most people, and I, I'm guessing most people on the call, right? Uh, they've had tequila, but it was either, as you said, late night uh, before the bar closed, or it was in a margarita or, you know, something else. So not connoisseurs of fine 
tequila and, and, you know, yours was actually a revelation to me. I hadn't really had uh, great tequila. And I think you were the one just pretend it's scotch, <laughs> drink it the same way and you'll be fine. And, uh, you know, it's, it's wonderful, but it, it's sure not what I kind of knew. So how did you convince people that, Hey, you need a high quality tequila here in North America? I mean, it was, I think, being it's it's funny a couple couple advantages I didn't realize were advantages back then but there are certainly advantages today when I when I noticed it. Number one is we started with and this is a, a little bit of a tangent we started with no money right we started with 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 effectively ten grand in marketing so we had to be really out of the box and think differently quote unquote outside of the industry standards as to how to effectively penetrate the marketplace because if somebody would have given me you know two three million bucks to start off I, to be quite honest I probably would have wasted two or three million dollars would have had a heck of a time doing it. But that's not what building shareholder value is for, for your peers and, and for yourself. So that discipline caused to think outside the box and effectively build a culture within Tromba that is ROI-based, that effectively is there today. I think uh, one, of the, one of the things that we had in our favor is being a small company, and it's, it's probably testament to anybody that wants to start their own company, is the competitive advantage we have is we're agile. You know, we have that agility where we can go and, and turn on a dime and effectively cater our, you know, cater against what the industry says we should do. And I remember giving our business plan to a, a industry expert and he took it and then he gave it back to me a week later. And I think it had more red ink on it than black ink. On it. <laughs> and words like impossible can't happen. You need at least a million dollars to launch the Toronto market. And he wasn't wrong, but we didn't know that he was right. And right. that allowed us to effectively open up our eyes to do things in a different way. So while the big boys would go and they would, you know, beeline for the bar manager, for example, to sell their product, we would beeline for the bartender. And their thought process, well, the bartender doesn't have the say, it's a bar manager or a product, but our thought process is, well, things are changing. The bartender, if you get the bartender on your side, any bar worth their salt is going to convince the bar manager they need to buy this product. And who's pushing the product to the customers? It's the bar manager. And we literally went bar by bar, bottle by bottle, and continued to do that. And what we, you know, if we would have overanalyzed things and went with industry experts, we would have gotten nowhere. We would have done the same thing that the big boys do, uh, gotten a pissing match capital-wise, and would have lasted no time with them at all. So thinking outside the box, being agile, and out really for us, it's it's out, it's out working our competition and out loving our customer base. I mean, we just showed so much goodwill and so much love to, you know, to the hospitality community. And, you know, without, with, and not every time you get paid back, but, you know, seven out of 10 times you do. And that when somebody, when somebody discovers, for example, about tequila from your product or is first educated about tequila from your product or any sort of, you know, any sort of uh, product, they build that inherent loyalty to your brand. Right. Where yeah. this, I fell in love with tequila with Tromba. I, you know, I fell in love with, with, you know, this juice with X, X company and education, training, out loving our customers, you not know, thinking our competitors were, were, were the, uh, ways to go. and they didn't, they didn't quite pay very much attention to us until we started to get some scale. And then they, and yeah. they, they were quite a nuisance. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know it took a while. And but as you said, uh, both in Canada and Australia, fastest growing tequila brand in the market for I don't know how many years. And 
that's led to getting picked up in the U.S. Uh, I know it was public, uh, announced that you just signed a really uh, a great agreement with a distribution company out of the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and how, how you were able to secure, you know, a really great distributor? Yeah, so so um, we're now aligned with, uh, we will be aligned actually within two, about a week and a half, February 1st, um, with Sazerac in the United States. For those who aren't as familiar with Sazerac, they are the largest bourbon seller in um, in the world, I believe. Uh, they are the number two and number th- or number three player uh, in terms of, of liquor in the United States. Uh, and some states are number one. So they're, they're massive. And, uh, you know, for us, we, um, you know, for us, it was a tremendous shift when it came to COVID, where, you know, we, uh, come March of, of, of last year, we were very bar restaurant focused brand, right? 70% of our sales are in the, what's called the on-premise bars and restaurants. And it doesn't take a genius to figure out that when COVID hit, that's a very bad place to be. And so our sales didn't go down, you know, 30, 40% in the on-premise. It went, they went, they went to zero over a period of, you know, like, like that. Yeah. And then some, provinces and states they still are pretty pretty close to zero in the world of on-premise so we made a lot of changes during during covid and one of the changes was partnering with a larger player and we had been approached quite a bit over the last year and a half and we didn't we wanted to remain independent we wanted to effectively carve our own way we know that there's no such thing as a free lunch but what we realized when it came to covid is is the impact, the current impact of COVID is one thing, but the after impact of COVID is structurally going to make it very difficult for brands like ourselves, which are strong independents to grow that fast. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to bore you with, with exactly why, but the U.S. distribution structure is set up where large suppliers have a lot more close with distributors. And it's always been the case. And it's going to be more and more and more focused on the larger, larger suppliers after COVID because they have a lot of ground to make up. And so something that probably wasn't that we would have said heck no to a year ago, we said heck yes to effectively because the rules of the game have shifted. And what became strategically unappealing to us 12 months ago became strategically appealing to us and not from a point of desperation or anything like that, because those guys, they could have picked a thousand other products, but it came from the point of structural shifts within the industry that, we had to recognize and we couldn't bury our heads in the sand and say, we don't want to do this because of an ideology. And what we've seen, I mean, it, it kicks off, um, it kicks off again, very shortly. And we've seen already, they've already pre-sold a heck of a lot of products um, and they're picking up. We've actually launching uh, a ready to drink portfolio as well that they're, uh, that they're also picking up across the United States. So it also checks another box for us to move more into retail right? Or to grocery, more into large scale liquor stores, which you can do as an independent. But if you have big brother Sazerac behind you, it makes life a heck of a lot easier to execute. Now, was, was that uh, part of the decision behind going uh, with uh, some additional products? Uh, as you said, yeah, I know they're tequila based, but uh, you have more SKUs out there now. Was that partly because of the distributor or was that a decision you made before that? No, it was, it was a decision we made before that and, you know, bet, better to be lucky than smart. We ended up launching one of our, our, our ready to drink our, um, our Tromba and soda and the LCBO actually with, with a bat. So a different, different partner, um, in, in effect in June of, 
of this year. So obviously, ready to drink has been a good place to be in the summertime of, of a pandemic. But you know, one of the things as soon as we were always thinking about RTDs, but as soon as the pandemic, you know, kind of kicked off, we really thought about the ready to drink and as another way to effectively continue to move the brand towards, you know, what is going to be a medium term new reality. And so in addition to the trombone soda, we launched a margarita. We launched a, uh, or we're launching a margarita, we're launching a Paloma, all US based. And Sazerac effectively put, put a gun to our head and they said, if you're going to launch it, we want it all. Okay. Uh, so to your question, we didn't think about launching it. We want, that was kind of seeded before, but yeah. having a partner like that in a space that's getting more and more crowded yeah. makes us a lot more confident to launch it and gives us, again, the distribution that we, we need both retail and with the distributors to effectively move products. And one of the things that I've learned is having a, and Sazerac's not, they're not a distributor, they're, they're, they're an importer, they're, they're a supplier. So, okay. so it's different, but, but having, right. having a distributor, a big distributor, take your product and I don't care if it's, if it's liquor, if it's food, if it's, you know, whatever it is, you know, whatever widget you're making, that can sometimes be the kiss of death because distributors are not in business, generally speaking, to detail your product. That belongs to the brand owner. And so having Sazerac with us to push things through the distributor gives us a chance for success. We have to execute on it. Where if we're doing that ourselves, that's a lot, a lot of manpower to yeah. the distributor work for you. And I've seen it so many times, it's a kiss of death sometimes. You get a big distribution deal and then the product sits in the warehouse with the distributor. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's funny you say that because uh, I see the same thing. I think too many entrepreneurs think they, okay, we're done. We've succeeded. We got it into the distributor, right? And your, your work's really just starting at, at that point. You've got to make sure it's pulling through the distributors uh, to be successful. Mm -hmm. hey, you talked a little bit about COVID um, and you really had to pivot the business. Are, are there other kind of changes you've made during COVID or, you know, kind of lessons learned uh, through this period that, that you can share? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's been quite a uh, quite a few. So obviously, a tactical shift from retail to or from from on premise to to retail is one. Obviously, the Sazerac deal is another new new, new SKUs. We actually are, are right now toying with another. Well, not toying. We do, we do have the product, but we actually started creating from our the waste of our of our agave plant. We started to make single use disposable environmentally friendly products. So straws, cups, cutlery, all that type of stuff. And Just out of the fiber, the agave fiber, is that? Yeah. Oh, cool. That's a sister company actually working to to continue to to expand that hiring, but uh, but that's been really really interesting because there's a massive waste problem that that happens with um, tequila, and there's a massive call to action right now when it comes to providing sustainable solutions, and so we effectively again better be lucky than smart. A friend of a friend made straws out of corn and sugar. And he said, can I try it with your, with your waste? And, you know, sustainability is really important to us. And we gave him our waste and he made a straw that absolutely blew my mind. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out there's a straw problem in the world. You're the devil for you is plastic or the devil for you is paper. And so the straw doesn't get soggy. It's using hot and cold beverages. And from that, effectively, we invested down in a factory down there and, uh, you know, because we have to control our own destiny and we partnered with Cisco in the United States and effectively now have a whole sustainable disposable line as a sister company in combination with, uh, with Tromba. So that, and we probably wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for COVID because, you know, I never thought I'd say the word wrapped cutlery in, in the same sentence. 
<laughs> sentence, but that's everything now has to be, you know, that sustain that sustainability theme is not going away. It's getting more and more rapid. COVID has For not sure. gone. And now the customization, the ability to adapt and be agile and make products that people want, then that's that's what we've effectively done. So we've we've uh, you know, that's been a really, really interesting part of our business. That's very cool. And I'm, I'm assuming all the same uh, partners still involved with the business at this point. Amazingly enough, all, all the same, all the same partners. And that's, I think, really, really interesting for us where we, we, we do disagree on a lot of things, but we all tend to agree on the larger goal and, and how we want to operate the business and, you know, and our personalities. And uh, I know so many uh, peers that have effectively had partnerships break down and things happen there. You probably know yeah. have a lot more than I do, but we've, you know, we've been able to have the same founders involved in that level of trust with, uh, between each, each one of us has been a recipe for success. I could leave any one of them with, with my bank account details, come back in a year and every, every cent will be there with, with this small amount of interest the banks are not paying. Yeah. Well, it's clearly what happens when you meet, you know, over tequila late nights at a bar, right? It, it's just, it always, yeah. works. <laughs> always works. Perfect. Hey, uh, we're, I've got a couple more questions for Eric, but if you're in the audience and you have, uh, do have some questions yourself, uh, go ahead and type them in and, and we'll try and get to as many as we can here in just a minute. Eric, you know, I know you're going to tell me you've made a lot, but if you think back at some of the pivotal mistakes, perhaps that you made in this journey and, um, Maybe if you could share one or two of the mistakes and kind of what you learned and and how you were able to recover and, and move forward. Yeah, and yes, I've, I've certainly made a ton of mistakes and make mistakes every day. Thank, thankfully, I'm um, I'm a big believer in of, uh, just trying to be instead of trying to be very very intelligent, trying to just be not not stupid. Um, <laughs> there's, there's, an old, there's an old saying I think it's a Charlie Munger one where um, you know it's a strong swimmers who drown, right? So if you try to be too clever sometimes, and I know a lot of a lot, of, a lot of the companies that blow up is because people take uncalculated risks that farm on things, and sometimes it works out, but but a lot of times, a lot of times it doesn't. They're not they're not stupid by any stretch of the imagination. It's just you know, wrong risk at the wrong time. So thankfully, I haven't made one big mistake that's cost the company you know millions of dollars. But uh, I think a, a big mistake I've made that I can think about quite clearly is is the way I used to hire, and you know, and it might be a bit early for for strong, you know, some aspiring entrepreneurs, but maybe not. But I used to think that if I get somebody super experienced with, with a great contact list or Rolodex, as I guess we used to say, I can kind of ignore the downside of things. And, and one of the things that I can't overemphasize is always hire, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's a, somebody running your sales or even someone down, the, someone down the line, make sure that cultural aspect is aligned. Because I've I have again hired for um, you know same. Well, I knew that the person didn't believe in what we were doing to an extent or wouldn't buy in, and very talented. But I said, you know what? The short-term impacts of getting those contacts, getting those sales up, and the impact it's going to have and in on our brand is going to way overweigh that. And there is a short-term uh, sugar high you get from from that from having that person involved. But in my experience, it always doesn't work out. Because yeah. that person has had experience of doing X really, really well for 20 years. They've done X really, really well, and you're doing Y because things have changed. Good luck getting that person to go from X to Y. Yeah. And you know, there's an old military axiom where uh, education is easier than re-education, or in simplistic terms, trying to teach an old dog new tricks. 
And I, I haven't been, been successful with doing that in every single time. It's, it, it's cost me a lot. I'd also say on the, uh, on the hiring side, I made the same mistake hiring, hiring what I call grumblers. So, so because, and, and, and it's, it seems pretty simple, but you know, you say that, you know, the person can be a, a bit of a pain or can bring the staff down or be, or be pessimistic, but they're so talented. They do so much for sales, all that stuff. That's going to, that's going to mitigate that. It's like a cancer. It eats on the culture of everybody else. And what's yeah. always really, really important to us is making sure that our team comes in. They love what they're doing. They have a passion for, for work and our turnover rate when it comes to you know, our brand team is extraordinarily low. I mean, we, we don't have people in a lot of cases leave, leave the brand on, on, on the brand side of things, the exciting side of things, because we always try to make the environment you work really special yeah. and strong. So, I mean, I've, I've made, I mean, I can point to a bunch of other mistakes I've made on, on the hiring side of things. I think that's probably one of the most important things that an entrepreneur or CEO can, can do is, is hire really, really good people that align with your culture and that make it enjoyable to come to work. Yeah, attitude and culture, really important. And uh, I love the idea of uh, trying to stay away from the grumblers because they pull everybody down with them, right? Yeah. They, they really do. And it's almost a death by paper cut. It really yeah. is. Every day, it just knocks on and on. All right. So we're kind of covering some lessons learned as well as we go through that, which is uh, the sign of any good entrepreneur. We learn from our mistakes, right? If you were to say there were two or three things maybe to, to pass along, I'm, I don't want to put a number on it, but, but any kind of lessons learned that, that you'd wanted to share with the group? I mean, I would say that, um, oh man, there's, there's so many, many, there's so, there's so many, I would say just, just to aspiring entrepreneurs, if, and it's not supposed to be easy. Anybody that says it's easy is, is effectively, you know, is, is lying to you or is, or is has, has, has ulterior motives. It's hard no matter what field you go into. And, you know, passion and persistence really does conquer so much, conquer so many obstacles. A big, big part of our success, and I try to hire people that also embody this, is folks that, you know, get told no. I mean, I've been told no more times than I can, than I can count, and usually not in such a polite, polite way. <laughs> um, but it's going from that sale to the next sale with the exact same amount of enthusiasm and drive that makes you successful. And, you know, it's all about believing in your product, believing in your brand and continue to work harder than, than the next person. And also I would say it's really, really important to, you know, if you talk to any, you know, forget about a business person, but musician, actor, author, comedian, be different, bring something unique to the marketplace. Mimicking things is just a regression to the mean. You have to effectively get out of your comfort zone and be different and challenge yourself. And that's another thing that, that has always been, you know, helped me. And I think it started with me going down to Mexico, putting yeah. myself in uncomfortable positions, challenging myself to effectively do things I didn't want to do has effectively made me a better, not only, not only a better professional, but, but a better person and given me a wider perspective as to what, what's going on in the marketplace. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. I think it's a great lesson. Um, we have a number of questions. If you don't mind, uh, I'll read uh, come, some of them out here for you. And uh, so Aaron Lee wants to thank you for taking the time to speak with them tonight. You know, would you say that your corporate work experience helped with running the business or would you suggest students in similar spots? You know, if, if you knew, would you have pursued it earlier? So that's a really good question. I was in a unique position where I was managing a 
portfolio of um, of stocks of equities. So I would go and I would dig into the to the to the companies and figure out the internal drivers of them and realize now how much the CEOs were effectively you know feeding me BS all the time. <laughs> um, you know, for, for for me it really worked out. I got to I got to kind of quote unquote learn on somebody else's dime. I think it depends on what you want to do and who your boss is. I had a tremendous boss that I learned a lot from. You know, she she was a you know she's a female in the, in the finance world, which you know was, was there for thirty you know thirty plus years, and that's an that's an amazing accomplishment given how difficult it was for for a female thirty years ago to to rise up in the world of finance, and that's because she had to be better than her male counterparts to effectively to succeed, and she. She gave me so many life lessons and so many things that effectively helped me. One of the things she told me was, which has helped me today and, and certainly helps me with some of the cultural aspects I deal with in some countries. But she said, you know, what is, what do you think is the greatest, you know, why do most companies fail? What's the greatest destroyer of value? And I said, I don't know, lack of, lack of cash flow. You know, textbook answer. They probably weren't for mine. And they said, and she said no. And I said, uh, profitability. She said no. And I said, well, what is it? She said, ego. She's seen more businesses and more money being burned based on illogical, irrational, and ego-based decisions. And lessons like that, you know, you can take that lesson and take it out of the textbook and put it into any business environment you want have been tremendously valuable and valuable to me. And I think about that conversation. To this day, when I'm having a difficult conversation with folks that I know rely a little bit too much on the ego for their decision-making process. So what I would say is do something you enjoy, number one. I mean, it sounds pretty pretty intuitive, but don't follow the money. And, and if you do have a path, if you're smart enough, smarter than I was to have a path as to what you want to do, try to link link that up because that passion will effectively effectively bleed, bleed through. But I would also say that today there's you know, there's so much more resources for entrepreneurs to go out out of school and, and have a crack at it. And there's, you know, there, there's, there's funds available and all that stuff that didn't exist nearly as much back when, back in 2005. I mean, nobody, would, nobody would give me a nickel off. <laughs> tried to start something, but I think, I think it's wonderful. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. And I, you know, I think that idea of humility uh, is really important for entrepreneurs because that, that means you're open to learning. And, and I really do believe to be successful as an entrepreneur, it's, it's can you learn quick enough to, to keep up with the business? And, uh, you know, clearly you've got that and kudos to you for that. Really interesting question from Justin Duff. Uh, at the moment, uh, the waste from agave uh, from your tequila products is fueling your sustainable straw venture. What happens if the straw venture material outpaces the tequila production? <laughs> It's, it's a very good question. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on kind of what side you want to take it, uh, that's not really a short-term issue because if it's not our waste, there's there's a whole lot of waste going on in the world of tequila. So that raw material is not not really unfortunately going anywhere, and it, and it creates a lot of environmental problems in in Mexico. Mexico, you know, I probably haven't heard about it because Mexico's sustainability is not really at the forefront of yeah. of, uh, of some of the things that goes on down there. But that's not. You know, it's a very logical assumption to think it's a, it's a risk, but that is not a, a short, medium, and probably not a long-term risk. Yeah, yeah, okay. This is uh, anonymous, so I'm not sure why, because the question seems pretty fair. Uh, was there ever a time you didn't think the company was going to make it? And, you know, if so, how did you overcome that? Oh, yeah. hundred. Uh, this is a really good question, 100%. I remember we, there's one story where we effectively gave a uh, uh, loaned a slushy machine to a to a bar and restaurant 
in Toronto and the slushy guy was there and he was installing it. And he said he, he, before he left, before he actually plugged in, he had to get paid. And we looked in our, I told my account to pay him. And he said, you don't have any money. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He goes, you don't, you don't have any, any money in the bank account. And I said, well, what, what do I do? I mean, this is, <laughs> he's there. He's, he's going to take the machine out. Uh, I mean, this guy like this doesn't give terms and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a terrible impact on the fact that, uh, you know, not only am I going to leave, you know, the word's going to spread and all that stuff. And I actually had to, had to basically borrow the money from my accountant who was nice enough to, nice enough to tell me. I mean, oh yeah. I mean, all, 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 all the time it was, you know, there was an uncomfortable excitement early on um, when, when, you know, when we didn't know what was going to happen the next day. And there was a lot of times where we're just like, because our competitors are multi-billion dollar corporations with hundreds, if not thousands of people on the ground around the world, hundreds of millions of dollars of marketing budgets. How the, how the hell are we going to compete with them with me on the street, my partner in Australia, two backpacks and a couple bottles. I mean, it, on paper, we had no chance. And, and how do we persevere from it? I guess, I guess we just basically, you know, Someone once told me to always kind of be childlike when it comes to uh, when it comes to business. That doesn't mean throwing throwing temper tantrums, but that means effectively throwing away, you know, you know, taking your past problems, hopefully learning from it, but moving on very, very quickly and having that mentality to adapt and adjust and saying, okay, not holding any grudges or, or worrying about what happened in the past, but just continue to move on to the to the future. But yeah, no, there was, I mean, there was all kinds of times where you wonder like, what the heck's what the heck's going to happen okay. with, with this brand? And, nah, and but, but also it was, it was kind of, it was, it was really nice as well, because when you started a business, those first initial wins, the first bars you get first, you know, first listing you get in the liquor store. I mean, those are huge. You are ecstatic. You can't think life can get any better than that. And in some ways, you, you know, you do, you do miss that, miss that a little bit because it's just, it's just, it's incredible. It's an incredible feeling. Some of those. Each one is a big win at that stage. Huge. Yeah. I remember when we got into the LCBL, I, I, I sat out on, I was still with my parents, but I sat out in the, the, their deck and I just basically stared into the sky for, for a good 40, 45 minutes. But yeah, it's, 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 uh, it was interesting times for sure. Cool. I have a question here from Deborah Kennedy on the, on the product actually. So, you know, what's the point difference of your tequila that makes the consumer want to buy it over the competition? Why is yours good? Sure. So, I mean, I think it's, I think it's effectively, you know, in a lot of cases, the, the brands in the bottle. So who's making it, you know, you have, you know, it's a distiller owned tequila, which is very rare, if not non-existent in the world of, of tequila. He's making it with his son, handcrafted batch by batch. And effectively it's, you know, not only is it the product, but how, how we message it. So we're very, very big in terms of education, training, telling that story in big in terms of, of word of mouth as well. So, um, you know, having, we, we find that's even today with all the elements in terms of digital and social, telling that story, whether it be, uh, again, through, through social or through, you know, word of mouth or recommendation is, has been a huge key to success. And one of the things that's been very successful for us, which we think will be very successful again, is that, is that bartender alliance, that bartender storytelling. And hospitality right now is is in the dumps, um, but we're seeing a really really interesting recovery going on in some states in the U.S. and in Australia, for example, they came out of their lockdown, 
And, you know, it shouldn't be any big surprise that the Australians went, uh, went a bit bananas and started, <laughs> started, started drinking like, like it was no tomorrow going out and eating. And we didn't just see it with, you know, the 20 year olds we saw it with kind of every demographic was going out and sales went from, you know, what we would sell it in, in, in a month and a half in the last year, we'd sell in a week. We're selling in a week now in Australia and it hasn't slowed down. And, you know, in some ways the world will change and in some ways the world will go back to normal. And I think the world of hospitality is going to be impaired for the next six to eight months. But after that, it's, it's going to be a really, really exciting place to be again. Cool. Cool. That's exciting. Niraj uh, Gandhi wants to know what advice would you give yourself if you were starting over? Hmm. I think, um, you know, there, again, there's so many, uh, mistakes that I've made. Um, I think that that hiring piece is, is just would have saved me a hell of a lot of headaches and forget about the money. It's, you know, when, when you hire poorly, not only is there, is there a monetary cost, but there's that intangible cost that some people can never recover from because it's, you spend the time, the effort, that person builds a brand, that person brings their relationships and forges new relationships, which may or may will probably not be around after that person's, after that person's gone. I think it's effectively, you know, it's, again, it's, it's stay the course as well, because starting a business is extremely difficult, um, especially in this environment. And, but uh, there's just, there's so much I could, I could tell myself, I think, I think that hiring piece is probably the, you know, the the biggest mistake that I made, because I didn't just make it once. I'm not that smart. I made it uh, two or three times because that intention, that that the temptation is just so, so incredibly, so incredibly strong. Well, Eric, a couple of questions kind of related to that. Um, you know, we're in the COVID lockdown. Uh, you have parts of the company in Mexico, parts of the company here. Um, I'm probably in the States or soon. I'm not sure. How do you foster a culture in a remote environment like that? It's obviously very difficult um, because it is such a, you know, face-to-face interaction relationship-based business like most businesses are. You know, you effectively do the best you can. You schedule you have as much communication uh, through Zoom or even through the phone with your uh, with your team as, as possible. You do a lot more check-ins with them, and uh, you know, and, and effectively you try to share as many wins as possible coming through. And it's a really interesting time to effectively build build culture and get on the same plan with with your team. But we've actually been able to do quite well with with the team, and, and thankfully we have a, a team of professionals. And, uh, and folks that effectively that have been around the block a few times and can adapt to all kinds of, of crazy things. But I just think that good people as well are, are generally speaking resilient and they'll find a way to get to get things done and weeding out those, those grumblers and weeding out those bad apples. If I would have had them involved in the organization now, it would have made that, that culture building and fostering that stuff a heck of a lot more difficult because I, I usually am down at the factory at least once a quarter. And I haven't been down there since, since March, uh, or sorry, before that, before, um, you know, it's, it's been over a year and I have such a wonderful team down in Mexico and such a great office down there. And that's where my business partners are that we haven't missed. We haven't missed a beat in a lot of respects. And that's also me getting more involved in the, in, in the process, not micromanaging because I'm a big believer of decentralized management as well. And letting people effectively hiring great people, letting them, have their own way to do things and not, not over be overbearing on control. Cause I think that's an old school and a, and a poor way to manage. But I think it stems from having the right people on board from day, from day one 
when this pandemic hit. We were lucky to effectively have gotten rid of some bad apples beforehand. Yeah, you know, Eric, just as an outside observer, I think, you know, your business grew up in some ways doing really good jobs tell, telling stories, whether it was to the bartender and, and making sure that those stories were, you know, told again and again and again. And, and, and that can go so far in uh, helping you build that culture when, when everybody knows those stories and, and uh, can pass them on to the new kid as they join the business, you know. But I think, I think you've done a great job with that as well. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, storytelling and, and, and a reason for being as, as to why you're here is uh is a very important factor because the world probably doesn't need another tequila <laughs> i did clearly it did <laughs> um, i have a question for you uh this is again anonymous it's a really interesting question what are some of the ways you stayed organized or, or kept your thinking clear even when maybe it wasn't clear what the next step should be wow that is a that is a very very good question how are the ways i've kept my i think um i think a few a few things so Number one, I always try to reserve some time during the day to, to think, which means close my computer, grab a pen and paper, or actually I'm more of a pencil guy, and effectively write, th- write, write things down um, and turn off, turn off the noise because you, know, you can get inundated with day-to-day distractions. And so having that time to think and reflect and plan is big. Set goals, set long-term goals as to where you want to go and try to figure out a map as to how you want to get there. The map will never work out, I promise you that. But a lot of those times, those goals, if you want them bad enough, will. You just have to take an interesting path. And find yourself, you know, find yourself a mentor. Find yourself somebody who, if you have problems, to effectively bounce ideas off of. I'm fortunate that my father was a uh, was an entrepreneur and, and built his business out of selling, uh, you know, in the 70s, selling extension cords out of, his, out of the trunk of his car. And built it up to you know a medium-sized business, and ended up ended up exiting exiting the business for you know Tim is, is in what is you know a great great exit, but uh, you know he's a guy that's been there and done that, and so having somebody to give you that that advice that effectively is you know that that's been there is is really really helpful. So I always encourage young entrepreneurs to find themselves a mentor and somebody they can effectively share things with and and, and give them that path and whether it's encouragement or advice it's super super helpful cool i have a kind of a comment i, I think you answered his question but i'm going to tell you the comment anyways it's uh from cristobal Dubois. congratulations eric as a mexican it's super interesting to see tequila flourishing in other parts of the world and how a new strategy helped you position the brand in countries like canada and australia so congratulations uh, on that uh, his question was what what would you have done differently back then you know knowing what you know now Anything you might add to that? It's it's a, it's a really difficult question, and um, you know, I, I think that it's it's hard it's hard for me to answer because we didn't make a big calculated mistake, and I would have I would have liked to say that we would have liked to you know go out and be more aggressive in, in in funding the company, giving us more capital to effectively start, and and but I think that that could have effectively been a kiss of death for us as well because again, as I said before. If we would have had all that capital in the business, our ROI culture would have never really would have probably never materialized. I, I'm a big believer again of of life. You know, if you want something and you plan for it, life giving you those opportunities and setting you up. And I don't think we would be here today if we didn't. You know, if we did things drastically different than we did uh, than we did. You know, just kind of starting out. Yeah. 
Okay, I have a question here from Bruce Lamb, and I have to ask it because he wouldn't let me forget it if I didn't. Uh, word of mouth advertising is huge, obviously. Uh, do you also do a, a lot of social media or or digital marketing for the brand? We do. We have a you know we have a team that that effectively does that. We we you know we probably should have been doing a better job pre pre COVID because what we were having you know our, our main pillar was on the you know bar and restaurants seen where that storytelling was happening but obviously COVID has accelerated from bar restaurant to to digital and to to social it's something that we're certainly looking at continually improving we have we have improved it i don't think it's where we want it to be yet and also you know e-commerce is obviously as you take a deal to figure out e-commerce is has changed the landscape for not only you know not only liquor but pretty much every every product now and that's been an area where we're putting a lot of budget as well as to improve our e-commerce, improve our uh, improve our social, and uh, partnering with um, with Sazerac is one of the reasons as well as doing that is they do have effectively those those, those very strong platforms, more so on more so on the e-commerce side, where if you want to order a bottle of Tromba in Los Angeles, you effectively put your order through in 30 minutes, it's at your doorstep, hopefully with some delicious margarita mix. But yeah, no, it's it's obviously the world's the world shifted. And that's, and that's, and I think it will probably shift back a little bit more towards hospitality and stuff like that. And I think that'll be a strong place, but I don't think it'll, I don't think uh, e-commerce and social will give up, will give up that much ground. Okay. Uh, what do you think is different in today's world? Uh, somebody wants to start a craft spirit company than perhaps when you started. Oh, wow. It's, it's completely different. I mean, um, we tried to pitch some institutions starting Tromba and we were effectively laughed at, laughed out of the room. I mean, investment banks and venture capitals and capital companies and stuff like that, they, they wouldn't touch spirits with, with the 10 foot pole. And I think now that the, the amount of exits that have gone on and the development of craft spirits and the growth has attracted a lot of investors, institutional investors, and obviously individual investors. And it used to be folks that wanted to get into the business because it's, you know, it's a sexy, fun business to be involved with. Say, hey, I own a piece of a vodka and a piece of a tequila. Now there's folks that do that still, but there's a lot more folks that say, hey, this is a really, really great investment. You can make, you know, not only can you have fun and be proud of this investment, but also, also you can effectively make good money off it. And, and one, one of my, my main things is I'm a big, big believer of making as much money for your shareholders as possible. If you make money for your shareholders, you never have to worry about anything again in your life because you make money for them once, they'll come back and they'll continue to effectively, you know, give you capital whenever you need it and give you support. Having a great shareholder base is super, super important. And, and looking back on it, you know, we did pitch some VCs, they did tell us to bugger off, but thank God they did. Because generally speaking, they'd be effectively in our face making us do ridiculous quarterly due diligence and would try to tell us how to run the company based on quote unquote what the industry says. Thank goodness that we built a shareholder base of really remarkable supportive folks. And again, you know, my job is not to make as much money for me personally. My job is to make as much money for our shareholders. So anything I ever want to do again, if I want to do something again, I have a wonderful base of supporters of shareholders. Cool, Eric. That leads right into the next question I was going to ask you from uh, Asa Mahotra. If you were going to go for another venture, what would it be? What's mm -hmm. next? <laughs> Maybe your partner shouldn't be listening to this one. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we'll uh, we'll see. Pro probably, you know, probably not in the liquor space, but it's um, 
you know, maybe, maybe something on the, on the sustainable you know, mm-hmm. space, because I think it's, it's something that, that I'm passionate about. And it's, it's, uh, and I think it's, you know, people are looking for solutions right now when it comes to effectively sustainable and environmentally friendly products. So I think that those two boxes definitely check for me, but I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's too, it's too early to, to tell because I'm still in love with trauma and still, still my baby. And, you know, I have no plan to exit over the, over the short term. So I maybe, maybe ask me that question in two or three years if something changes. Cool. Uh, we just have time maybe for two more questions. I have uh, one I think is interesting here, Noah Hendricks. Uh, thanks for being here today. They're a little bit lost as to what happened in the middle part of your story. So you're, you're running around bar to bar with your backpacks, and now you've got this great partner in supply. <laughs> what, you know, when did you start to scale, and, and maybe what were some of the things that tipped to that uh, for you? It was really slow, the builds. I mean, I mean it, it was... I believe you build you build your brand. It was really bar by bar, bottle by bottle. And when you do that, you build it right. The foundation is really, really strong. We would never really compete on price because if you do, then you effectively commoditize your brand. People always pay more for a bottle of trauma than you know our competitors. You know, when did it when did it scale? I mean, it's it's really difficult because we never got one big, probably Sazerac deals probably are well, it is our biggest deal we've ever had, but you know, it just effectively grew and it grew and it grew slowly and slowly and slowly. And, and I can't tell you what it was, but there is a tipping point where we did hit where I think, I think kind of when I knew it um, was I was sitting at, at a bar and having a drink, I'm obviously having a trauma and they know who I am. And the person next to me sits down who I would, you know, then, and says, can I have, you know, two tequila traumas on the rocks? And I look over at the person. I said, well, it's not, it's not my friend. It's not my cousin. I don't know who this is. <laughs> Um, which is, which is, which is exceptional. And so, you know, how do we build, and then effectively my, my, my belief is to go, you know, be regionally strong versus nationally mediocre. So we launched in Ontario, we launched in Melbourne. We really just launched in Toronto, Melbourne, built up those cities, built up a groundswell there. If you're not successful in your own backyard, you're not going to be successful anywhere else. Then effectively took our product to Chicago, built it up there, then took it to New York because we took it to Chicago first, because if you tell somebody in Chicago, you launched in there before New York, they care. If you tell somebody in New York, you launched there before Chicago, they say, I don't give a shit. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and so it's a, so it was effectively just going around telling the story bar by bar, bottle by bottle. And, you know, a lot of people say we grew really fast, but it was really, you know, hard work doing the blocking and tackling and, and, and not, not getting tempted by shortcuts. Yeah. And then effectively, you know, building, building that base and people do talk and that word of mouth does, does produce a groundswell. And from there, we expanded to Florida and Los Angeles and Texas and until the Sazerac deal effectively came along. And now we're, you know, we're going to be available nationally with, you know, triple the SKUs that we had last year. But, you know, it's, it's, yeah, that middle part of the story is there's not one specific thing. We didn't get one deal that effectively transformed the company. It was just a lot of hard work. A lot of people putting their blood, sweat, and tears into the business to build it up, bar by bar, bottle by bottle, keeping that passion and 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 really loving what they were doing. Cool, Eric. I think it's a it's a great answer, and I think a great lesson for everybody. It's you know, there's never a magic pill. It's it's a lot of hard work, and keep after it. And uh, you know, you're you're able to step back a little bit now and and watch the guy next to you order uh, your product. That's really cool. You know, love that. All right, we're kind of out of time. Any any last words that uh, you wanted to share with everybody, or 
Uh, I mean, you it's want to close on. Yeah, I, I think it's well. First of all, thank you very much for having me in the forum and the, the really, really good questions. Some of them very thought provoking that I'll probably still be thinking about, uh, about later tonight. But I think it's you know, as much as it pains me to to do this via computer versus you know doing it in person, I think it's a really interesting time, and in some ways a wonderful time to be an aspiring entrepreneur. I think that you know what I've seen in the last year has been a whole a lot of disruption with the world being shaken up more so than I've seen probably in the last you know 10 years. And Eric, you're probably probably in the same boat as I am. Yep. And I've seen effectively, you know, what I always found was when I started, you know, when I started Trump and, and probably when you entrepreneurs go and start your own business, you're generally speaking, talking to a buyer that effectively has a misalignment of, uh, of needs where you're an entrepreneur, you need to effectively provide a wonderful solution to them that's you know groundbreaking and they need to effectively their measure they're incentivized to grow five 10 15 percent mind their manners put their head down and make sure their margins are okay and if as an entrepreneur if you grow five 10 15 percent you're dead you're not you're not in business anymore so you're trying so you're trying to effectively shove a solution to somebody that is pretty risk averse that wants to just not get fired What's happened in the last year has just been the an eye opening of of and I think every industry of people looking for new solutions, looking for ways to effectively improve their business, and and they're looking to both young and old to find those solutions. And so I want to you know for for you entrepreneurs think about what the world needs and what you're passionate about, and look at providing those solutions to to the world. And and as I said before, it's the game's changed and, and for a wonderful way where, again, when I, when I left school, one guy in my class who we thought was a lunatic became an entrepreneur because there was no, there was no infrastructure for it. Now there's a tremendous amount of infrastructure, there's a tremendous amount of, of firms that will, that will, you know, that are entrepreneurial based in terms of, of, of giving capital. Buyers are a lot more accepting to new and innovative things. I mean, right now, effectively, the pause button has been hit with a lot of industries where they can go and they can take the time and look at new solutions. So as one hand where it's really crappy that we're doing this through a computer screen, on the other hand, what a really, really, really interesting time. And I would argue, hopefully, once in a generational time to have the opportunity to be disruptive in a world of entrepreneurship. And if it doesn't work, you know what? You learn a heck of a lot, figure out what mistakes there were and move on from there. Uh, Eric, thanks. Uh, you know, I, I think we're really lucky to uh, have you with us tonight. I really appreciate uh, everything you've said, words of wisdom for everybody. I think that was really important. Um, love the closing. I want to thank everybody that uh, joined us this evening. And those of you in the business plan competition, I want to wish you the best of luck tomorrow in what you're doing. And yeah, it is an exciting time. And uh, we, yeah, the world's, you know, going through a lot of pain and a lot of suffering but there's a lot of opportunity as we start to turn the corner and come out of this. And it's, it's time to be looking and uh, it can be an exciting time. So let's run, let's run that one and, and keep it going. And, and Eric, you know, thanks again so much and continued success. Uh, everybody get out there and try a real tequila, try <laughs> Trumbo tequila, and uh, we'll take it from there. You've been listening to the Ivy Entrepreneur Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player or visit ivy.ca forward slash entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.